The Olympia Standard Podcast features calm, reasonable conversations about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Our goal is to help improve the quality of public discourse in our community and help us find solutions. Today, I'm sitting down with Robert Vanderpool, the newest member of the Olympia City Council. Robert was appointed to the council in January, replacing Dante Payne, who had vacated his seat when he was elected mayor. Robert was picked out of a panel of four finalists and began serving almost immediately. Just a side note, the vote that resulted in Robert's appointment was a very close ranked choice uh, voting process. If anyone is an election nerd, if you're listening to this podcast, it's pretty much required that you're an election nerd. I would suggest watching the video of that process. It's fascinating, it's fun, and I included a link to it in the show notes. So, Robert, welcome to the show. Um, Tell us about yourself and how you found your way to Olympia. My name is Robert Vanderpool. I have been living in Olympia for about six and a half years, give or take. Um, I was born in Baltimore. I spent uh, much of my childhood between Ohio and Baltimore. Um, you know, I spent my first seven, eight years of my life uh, living exclusively in Baltimore. And then after my parents split uh, in 2001, I would spend my summers and my warmer weather days in uh, the urban and Baltimore and DC area. And then in a very rural farming, uh, suburban Ohio, uh, just kind of north of Dayton. And um, I currently work at Labor and Industries and support services. Uh, prior to that, I worked a lot of industry jobs, support, um, service industry, security, graveyard shift to help me get through uh, my undergraduate and through my master's. Uh, I decided to do it all at once because, you know, student loans, <laughs> you know, yep. you got to get you got to just you got to keep going. Otherwise, you give it six months and it'll come back around. So, yeah. uh, you know, outside of city council and my job at LNI, I do a lot of urban planning reading and then I do a lot of history reading because my undergraduates in history and my master's is in public administration. But I did a lot, a lot of projects around urban planning policy. Um, I'm also an advocate movie watcher. And I also love, love baseball. It's the one sport that I'm used to the, uh, I'm used to the heartbreak. It's not, it's not, not as tough on me as uh, American football or college football and other uh, popular sports. But yeah, that's a little bit about me. Okay. So, um, one of the things I'm a big fan of, especially for, um, for city council candidates where the policy lines often aren't times is clearly drawn as they could be, say like in the legislature, is emotional intelligence questions. Because this tell us an idea of how you work in a team. We always see the, I always see the city council as more of a team where you kind of have to work together to get things done. So you're a member of a team. This is the question. So you're a member of the team that's made a choice that you don't necessarily agree with. How do you, as a team member, move forward honestly and forthrightly representing the team's choice while also balancing your beliefs and values? Yeah, you know, it is a very difficult thing. But in life, you have to do that in every job uh, that has some sort of consequential decision making. I often consider myself a bit of an observer, right? I like to get a lay of the land. Uh, I study the situation. I listen to people. I've even ran in, even though I've been on council for about three or four weeks now, (laughs) Like I've had people come up to me that had completely opposite opinions. I'm a renter, but then I had a person come up to me who was a local landlord and I, I, I emailed them back. I talked with them. 
you know, they had some they had some good points in there, right? And mm -hmm. um, in order to really get create good policy, I believe that you know I have to be able to listen, observe, you know, report, kind of express where I'm coming from, kind of meet in the halfway in the middle, and kind of figure out where we need to go from here because. You know, policy is often on the local, especially on the legislate, on the legislator level, on the state level, is often mm -hmm. a process of, you know, it doesn't work this year, it'll work the next year, right? right? Or we'll come back around to it, or we can add more additions, we can make adjustments. And, you know, that's the whole, like, academic learning process, right, is trying to find those lived experiences and those differences and, you know, find my way through it because you know I have my own views right obviously I have my own very urban uh strong urban agenda about where I want to go with the city and where things are but that's you know that doesn't mean that there aren't aspects of views that I need to include in there right um the, mm -hmm. there's a lot of wisdom in the public when it comes to the finer details of things right uh around emotional intelligence I would consider myself like the uh archetype the D, D archetype of the uh <laughs> of the observer right to to observe to study the situation to listen and you know that's i i would consider myself pretty strong in that okay so um before serving on council you were a member and chair of the bike pad committee what one what motivated you to serve on the bike pad committee um out of all the um volunteer assignments and what in that experience inspired you to step up to council? Yeah, so I got on, on BPAC because I am an advocate uh, cycler. I also walk a lot around the city and I take public transportation heavily. I found that I was frustrated by some lack of infrastructure as most people get, you know? Mm -hmm. there are, you know, I, you could talk to a dozen Olympians and half of them will say, we need more sidewalks, right? Uh, yeah. If not more percentage, right? So I got a little frustrated by that. And I thought, why not like go find out what the issue is? Why not like apply myself? You know, I've learned a lot of urban planning through books about national issues and how cities grapple with these things. But I figured I might as well figure it out while I live here, right? Figure out, you know, the community issue and figure out why, you know, why is it that what are the constraints around this, right? And then uh, I applied, I got on BPAC and I found, you know, budgeting issues, state rules, uh, federal rules, attachments, right? The end, the engineering and design standards, the EDS, which is like a very nerdy <laughs> thing to spend time reading. But I have a version that I have redacted and made re recommendations on several times because if a developer builds something, it's the thing that they're required to build from the center of the street to the property line. And so that's like mm -hmm. the bike lane and that's the sidewalk and that's the plumbing and sewage and electrical. You know, I got I, I really went from a like, these are the issues. These are the outputs and outcomes. And I thought, why don't I get involved? Right. It's easy for me to have any, have complain and have problems with something, but I thought I need to get involved in this. And I love public service. It's kind of the thing I find the most rewarding. And that's part of why I, I applied for city council is that like, I don't really consider myself a heavily political person. I'm a policy person, not really a political mm -hmm. person in air quotes, because this is a podcast and you can't see my fingers. Right. Uh, 
<laughs> I can guarantee he's doing air quotes now. Yeah, yeah. I really love policy and I love working on solutions. And it's like, and I find it rewarding to be able to do that. And it really feels, city council so far feels very much like graduate school in the sense that you're working with groups and you're trying to solve a problem and you're like working the problem over and over again. And then sometimes you run into something that you didn't observe before and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I public service, you know, that's, that's it. That's the reason. So now that you're on council, you've had a first few uh, um, meetings under your belt. You did the uh, council retreat. So going into this year, knowing what the council is going to work on, what's on its agenda, what of those issues are you most excited to work on? Uh, comp plan. I, uh, cool. <laughs> I'm so excited about the comp plan. I'm so glad I'm on land use and environment. A lot of the intergovernmental uh, committees that I'm either a main person or an alternate for, they're in the middle of working on things, right? Uh, comp mm -hmm. plan update. That is something that I, I I I nerd out on. I'm so excited about. I before I was on council, you could you can ask Young about this. But one time I was walking down the block to like uh like a yard sale thing, and I ran into her, and I said I started going, I started talking to her about the comp plan out of nowhere, <laughs> and she was she like stopped me and said, "Dude, we're we're at a yard sale. Like, talk to me later about the comp plan." So. Like so for the so for the listener, give me your elevator speech on what the comp plan is and why people should care about it. So the comp plan guides policy essentially, right? It's kind of like a I think of it as a, a checklist of things that the public wants out of their city, and it's broken down into various chapters and anything from parks to. I don't know, uh, housing and like, it's a lot of, it's a, there's a, it is kind of the guide for our direction, right? It's a combination mm -hmm. of where we want to go in the next 10 years, the next 20 years, and we update it periodically, right? If you want something to be paid for eventually, hopefully, or are looked into in a grant or for funding, it has to be at least be in the comprehensive plan. City council can, can pursue policies and our work plans throughout the year. But what really guides where we're going is comprehensive plan. And that's set by the state through the Growth Management Act. Um, mm -hmm. And it's and in, in addition to that, there are requirements in there that the state legislature adds to occasionally uh, through its legislative sessions. So missing middle, um, Jessica Bateman's bill passed last year, I think. A lot there's there are some comprehensive stuff in there that's going to be required through comprehensive plan updates and then uh not to get it more confusing we also have to <laughs> align it with the county right and so uh we do ours the county does theirs and it, it's kind of a way for us to all kind of measure up and match up because you know anyone knows that you can walk down the street on the border of olympia and suddenly you're in lacy yep. or suddenly you're in Tumwater, and so we kind of have to work together <laughs> Uh, yeah. So that suddenly, you know, the the sidewalk doesn't randomly end and the road gets wider where the sidewalk was. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes in some certain parts of Southeast Olympia, like two or three times in the same block. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that regional that regional thing you're uh, um, you're referring to. And you also referred to uh, um, your mix of committee assignments. You got Land Use and Environment Committee, Intercity Transit uh, Alternate, Regional Transportation Board, Housing Council Alternate. I can kind of see a theme in these, but talk to me about how these fit together for you. I'm going to start with the outcome or the output. 
in order to get to the goals that we want, like you talk to a lot of Olympians, they'll be like, I want the bus service to come all the time. Right? I want, I want like streetcars and light rail and all of that. In order to get there, we have mm -hmm. to plan for transportation. And then we also have to plan for density, right? You have to have kind of both. It's the chicken and the egg. You kind of have to have both to match up, to be able to afford it, to be able to manage it, to be able to meet those goals. And, you know, a lot of what I put myself in, uh, um, intergovernmental and uh, on the city council, is trying to get to those uh, those long-term outcomes. That's what I'm really interested in. And uh, additionally, I'm also on some CRI stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. So those haven't started up yet, but I'm also interested in that because that also affects the uh, built environment in a lot of ways. Um, so ultimately, I'm at like a built environment slash <laughs> uh, prop, uh, uh, land use type of person. Like I think about okay. the long-term outcomes and I think each one of these aspects need to work together to a certain degree in order to get to those goals. If we built moderate density and we lowered the amount of parking and if we lower parking develop and development, we also need to develop higher amounts of tr public transportation in order to switch over that output and be able to maximize it. And so like, that's why I'm on a series of these, uh, either as the main or the alternate. Um, I'm also been sitting in even as an alternate because I want to learn more and more about what's going on and be uh, make a very good educated guesses or not educated guesses, educated uh, mm -hmm. recommendations, not educated guesses, recommendations um, back to city council uh, so we can follow our policy goals. Nice. So um, we're now going to transition to the baseball portion of the podcast. So you mentioned you're originally from Baltimore, and um, and you may have mentioned you're a Baltimore Oriole fan, but I happen to know that. So I have a question, a couple of questions about Baltimore. Um, and my first one is, do you have a favorite sort of like a totemic um, fan memory? And while you mull that one over, I'm going to give you mine really quickly for the Baltimore Orioles. But mine was May 17th, 1996. Um, I'd been living in Delaware uh, for a few years. My family moved out there when I was when I was a kid. Um, but I was a freshman in college and all my friends had just come back in town and we'd gone over to Baltimore for a game. And, and we were, this was a, uh, um, the score ended up being 13 to 12 and it was going, it was a long game. Not going into extra innings, um, but we had left early because someone had to get to work. We left before the game ended. Um, and as we were leaving the um, stadium area, getting back to where our car was parked, um, we heard the crowd cheer and we ran over to where our radio was and Chris Hoyles had just hit a home run. Chris Hoyles, who Baltimore Orioles fans will remember as a catcher with absolutely no power, um, this was 96. The Mariners had just become a good team. I was riding high the, the fan experience and Chris Hoyles ruined it all for me. So I don't like the Orioles very much. Robert is what I'm trying to say. And I also learned the lesson of never leave a game early. Well, you know, I have, I ha I was spoiled as a kid. Okay. Yeah. When I was a child, my dad worked for key bank in Baltimore and key bank had a, uh, booth above uh, uh, um, owned by KeyBank, and mm -hmm. uh, even like my earliest memories is just kind of hanging out there. I have been to so many games <laughs> because of that. 
And I was like, I was used to that because it was paid for by my dad's job. And then I got up there and, and then like years later, I was like, man, tickets are not cheap. <laughs> no, they're so, not. No, they're not. But I think that my favorite memory is um, the many, many, many times that I got to see Cal Ripken when I was younger. Um, you know, I was there when he broke his record. Um, no way. Insane. Insane. <laughs> I, you know, they kept, we kept going to games because we thought it was going, we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer. My dad bought the tickets and we, it, we were there, you know, Cal Ripken got his consecutive and I've actually said it to people before uh, in meetings at city council, uh, you know, you don't have to come to everything. And I'd be like, you know, when I was a kid, I was a big Cal Ripken fan. And so I'm going <laughs> to stay, I'm going to be around <laughs> I, you know, I know I need to take mental breaks and vacations and spend time with family, I, but I'm, I'll be around. As a Mariners fan, sure, go ahead. I mean, fine. That's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> this actually didn't occur to me to ask until just now, but how much do you think that your, uh, um, that your understanding of urbanism is informed by the experience as a kid going to Camden Yards, Camden Yards being the first sort of nouveau throwback urban urban stadium yeah you know i i think it, it affected me a lot i mean i think that the contrast between having to uh living in baltimore and then like living my other part of my childhood in ohio in a very urban or not urban, suburban very rural very spread out you know sydney ohio is like twice the spatial distance as Olympia with half the population or a quarter of the population. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very sprawled out. Being able to, when I was in Baltimore, even to walk to things and take the um, their light rail, which gets stuck in traffic, it's a terrible idea, but it does its <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah. But being able to go between those two things, right? Be able to, it's just such a large contrast between like a very higher density, you know, walkable communities and then going to, you know, a, a suburban part of that. And I think that the getting back to Camden Yards is, yeah, being right where it is in Baltimore, it, it does have a big parking lot that does drive me a little crazy. But it yeah. shares its parking lot, you know, which is fine. But I, I do think that at the time it was a trend back towards urban baseball fields because the L.A. stadium that they built mm -hmm. out, way out mm -hmm. in L.A., that's that is an island, right? That's not, mm -hmm. that's, you know what I mean? That was the trend for a long time is to build them kind of in the suburbs, build these huge parking lots. But I, what I love about it is to be able to, and I, and I go up to go up to Seattle and I go to T-Mobile Park. I like the fact that I can walk right into Seattle. That's, it's, it puts the parking in one spot so that you can just kind of walk into the city, right? Yeah. There's something valuable about going to a baseball game or a local event and then being able to, go out into the city and go have like lunch with someone and then come back in or walk to your apartment. If you live in Seattle, you know, I love the idea of these third places. I put it in my description, but to be able to get to places conveniently is really affects how you travel and it affects your choices and, 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 and cost measures in cities that internationally where people ride bikes and walk more and take public transportation more. It's because it's convenient because things are closer mm -hmm. together, right? And to get there, I really think that selling that outcome, selling the idea that things are closer together, that thing, you know, it, there's a benefit to this. Yeah, it'll take a lot of effort because we're a very car-centric society, but a lot of those East Coast cities were built before the automobile. 
that were affected mm-hmm. by it, right? We built the Beltway, and it, when they did that, it, it cut a lot of African-American communities in half, and it flattened a lot of communities around Baltimore. And it, you really can see like a poverty divide between one side and the other. But I think that in the next 50 years, there'll be more more and more reinvestment in this type of cities. And, I and you know, Olympia is fairly new compared to that, right? We're not an yeah. old city, right? We're still building in, right? We're still doing our infill, right? We're still going through it. And so I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about where we're going to go from here. I think that's a, I think that's a perfect place to end, Robert. Again, thank you for joining us today. This has been the Olympia Standard. You can find us on Facebook at the Oli Standard and in the Fediverse at pnw.zone at the Oli Standard. If you have any show ideas or comments, feel free to send us an email at theolympiastandard.com. Do you like the show? Well, rate us on that thing you get podcasts on, or just tell your friends. This show is produced by Jemmy Joe. He's also a musician that has recently written the best song ever about Olympia called Roasting Olympia. You can buy it at jemmyjoe.bandcamp.com. And now that you've gotten this far, we're going to run one more quick segment where I ask Robert about The Wire. So, Robert, um, being from Baltimore, should people in Olympia watch The Wire and why? Uh-huh. You know, I it's an award-winning show. It shows the difficulties of life. Uh, you know, it's in, in Baltimore in the ni- early '90s, but it's it's more than that. Like I would mm-hmm. say, I would say it's important historically, but also remember, like any book or or media you read, that mm-hmm. cities are more than that, right? People, Baltimore is like does have a crime problem, and it's had a crime problem for a long time, but that's because of mm-hmm. disparity communities that are underinvested, right? But Baltimore is a great city. Like yeah. and it has great bones, right? It can it can continue to be reinvested in a way that doesn't displace people. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. Right. That's yeah, what I would um, say. There are a handful of pieces of art like Prayer for a City by Buzz Bissinger and The Wire that I think about that talk about like civic issues in like a real and naked way. Yeah, I was glad you you were from Baltimore, so give us a chance to talk about The Wire. But The Wire does like such a perfect job of that, and especially weaving in like how power structures work together is such a yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. It's Baltimore is more than The Wire, but Baltimore, I think, is in politics and local politics in general are very much well represented in things like The Wire.